Hi everyone, and welcome to Crime Science. In this podcast, we explore the science of crime and the practical application of this science for loss prevention and asset protection practitioners, as well as other professionals. Welcome everybody to another episode of Crime Science, the podcast. This is the latest in our weekly update series, and I'm joined today by our uh, co-hosts, Tony Onofrio and Tom Meehan, as well as our producer, Diego Rodriguez. And we're going to talk a little bit about what's going on around the world. Um, I'm going to start a little bit here with uh, with the coronavirus, the COVID-19 disease. Um, and, you know, we obviously are hearing that in many, if not most countries around the world, including the United States, uh, infection rates have um, shot upward. Um, and again, at a time of much lower testing. So uh, I saw a latest estimate that uh, the United States is pacing at about 134,000 newly reported weekly infections right now. This compares to uh, this time last year in 2021 to around 23,000 weekly. So we can see that uh, we've got a very large increase in infections. Um, and uh, it really, unlike in the past, I, I for some reason, uh, I'm hearing about a lot of people I know that have gotten uh, recently gotten COVID and um, most uh, anecdotally seem to be very mild infections. But um, I see uh, looking at the literature and other postings by uh, virologists and epidemiologists, on um, infectious disease physicians talking about take it seriously, try and prevent it. Uh, but if you're infected, um, certainly try everything you can not to pass on to someone else, but treat yourself well, try and hydrate and rest, get adequate rest. I, I see that when people power through that uh, many physicians are looking at studies saying that that can prolong uh, the effects. Um, and again, we're, we're, we're still trying to understand the effects of any virus, I understand, but particularly this, corona, this particular version of coronavirus. And the idea that this will be with us for a long time uh, seems to be out there. I was listening to a, a podcast uh, featuring a, a vaccine specialist. Uh, he's a pediatric uh, academic researcher and physician, um, but uh, internationally known for his vaccine development and, and research. Um, but he talked about it. There are at least five circulating coronaviruses um, that they're able to trace back through time. Some of these through genetic modifications, I guess, that occur in the population. And, uh, and so at least five or so, so right now in the United States, um, the, the earliest they can uh, sort of date back right now, somewhere around the 1700s. So that gives you an idea that we've got a circulating coronavirus. Uh, this is not the COVID-19 uh, SARS-CoV-2 virus that we're all dealing with here globally, but uh, another version of a coronavirus, evidently. Uh, but that gives you an idea of the persistence of viruses. So, you know, we all still need to continue to take it seriously um, as far as self-protection. Uh, you know, on the vaccine front, the uh, the same um, vaccine research scientist and physician was talking about um, one of the top vaccine specialists in the world who developed, uh, and I think the number was around six of the top 10 childhood disease vaccines, uh, the current versions, uh, which are lifesavers. Vaccines have been total, complete game changers for humanity, um, but that he never felt comfortable until there were a couple of million uh, uh, people had received the vaccine in addition to all the rigorous research uh, through preclinical and then clinical phase one, two, and three trials, um, that, that that's when they started realizing, okay, this is not only efficacious, it looks like in the, in the follow-on data, but, but very safe. Um, 
and at this point now we're closing in on a billion humans that have been vaccinated by uh, with these new vaccines for the coronavirus for SARS-CoV-2 virus. So uh, bear in mind, this is, you know, this is the most heavily researched, studied, analyzed, whatever, however you want to look at it, series, particularly these mRNA vaccines that we've got from Moderna and from Pfizer. So um, and we've updated before on here, of course, many, many times that the the amount of preclinical, but the clinical trials for other vaccine candidates, uh, 122 clinical trials uh, currently underway. And as we've talked about before, again, it's uh, efficaciousness and safety, but uh, is it, does it work well to reduce or prevent even infection like some other vaccines that we've got? Um, and so that's been the, the holy grail, what they've been chasing. Um, they certainly the ones that we've got in the United States anyway are very, very good at reducing the likelihood of very serious disease from an infection, but not necessarily the infection itself. So um, many of these candidates in there, there are 54 in phase one candidates, there are 46 vaccine candidates in two, and then there are 50 now, uh, an incredible number of, uh, of COVID vaccines um, in trial, 50 of those. So um, stand by on all that. Um, now, switching over to uh, the LPRC, and uh, we have a lot of gatherings throughout the year. Typically, six is our is our goal. Um, due to heavy research projects and all, what we've done is we sort of realigned in 2022, um, and we're adding two new research. In fact, we've been very blessed with having so many qualified research scientist candidates this time that we've been looking, because we're expanding again by two. Um, and so we've got uh, one candidate we interviewed last week in town. We've got another one in Gainesville uh, coming up this week and then uh, another next week, for example. But what we've tried to do is we increase our research bandwidth is try and refine what we're doing. So August 2nd and 3rd in Philadelphia, we are going to have the Supply Chain uh, Protection Summit put on by the um, LPRC Supply Chain Protection Working Group. So uh, please go to lpresearch.org or send an email to operations at lpresearch.org for more information on the Supply Chain Summit. That should be a really good one. Uh, our team has been doing a hugely deep dive on looking at all the dynamics the supply chain goes through, all the aiming points like we do with the journey to crime in a store, office, or parking lot environment. Now we're looking at the supply chain. So supply LPRC Supply Chain Summit, August 2nd through the 3rd in Philadelphia. Uh, get your information here. Uh, get your information at the LPRC Connect weekly e-newsletter uh, or online on LinkedIn, uh, Twitter, Facebook postings from the LPRC. Um, <clears throat> we've got uh, our Impact Summit, of course, is going to be the 3rd through the 5th of October. Uh, we've got fantastic enrollment, but we encourage everybody to enroll now. Uh, that's coming in, all of our members, um, because it's filling up fast. And we really do have a hard stop uh, at, at 450 participants. So um, I, I would get, I would please re register now. Those uh, solution partners that are interested in, in supporting, we've got a ton that already are and more that are getting ready to support uh, specific sessions or parts of the LPRC 2022 impact um, again, reach out to, if you would, to Diego uh, at lpresearch.org. He'll, he'll get the information to the right people to chat at lpresearch.org or Brian, B-R-Y-A-N. Um, and they'll take care of you on enrolling for impact, enrolling for the Supply Chain Summit, uh, sponsoring 
the summit and our impact. Now with the violent crime working group and with the uh, LPRC's innovation working group, what we've been calling the SOC and Sensor Summit, what we're gonna do in 2022 here is we are creating special tracks in impact uh, that will be violent crime related, armed robbery and crime mapping, um, active assailant, early threat and uh, better response. Um, you're gonna see on homeless and harm and the voice of the stored victims that are uh, exposed to or even uh, seriously uh, affected by violent crime, aggression, or constant theft in their locations. So that'll be part of our um, violent crime working group track during LPRC impact. Uh, with the SOC and Sensor, the LPRC Innovate, Innovation uh, Working Group, there will be special tracks there. We've got Innovate partners. They will be talking about their technologies. Uh, Innovate is a program that uh, was designed uh, four years ago, just about, almost going on four years, uh, to bring together the best and the brightest, uh, to form an advisory panel of specialist uh, retailers. Right now we're at 15, but we've got 15 more committed. So you're gonna see uh, the innovation people from 30 major retailizations of all types. We've tried to have quick serve restaurants to convenience stores, uh, to drug stores, uh, mainline department stores and everything else. Um, are all going to be represented on there. Each of those retailers uh, appointing two people uh, to, they can tag team members, if you will. They can both be on a call or at our two meetings at Ignite and Impact, uh, or they can, uh, that way we've always got a consensus of one can't make it, typically another can. Um, so we're going to have a robust annual year-round working group there. And these people are on this advisory panel to really help us think about and plan, uh, integrate, test, roll out, um, uh, cutting edge, uh, repurposing enhancements and new technologies, particularly integrations of, of all the above for more cost-effective and impactful um, solution sets with fewer negative side effects. Um, they also are in the tent. They're, they're part of working with uh, innovators learning future thinking techniques, future design techniques, uh, human-centered design, um, and so on. So there's a lot of good things in there for our retailer members of the LPRC Innovate Advisory Panel. Uh, the other advisory panel members that are mission critical are those that are funding the innovation, the Innovate program. They're allowing us to bring on two incremental research scientists and a data scientist along with a net tech or network technician, the technician to help us constantly integrate and do the, the groundwork that we need to do in connecting these things and getting them on, uh, hooking up VPNs and making sure we've got all the compute and inferencing uh, power that we need capability here. So those members are on there. Uh, we've got five currently. We'd like to grow that by 10. Uh, so really at this point, those are the members of the advisory panel and they work together on helping us uh, put together, uh, build the program to conduct innovation. And many things have come out of this group. Um, we've got uh, in the integration working group that works for them and with them, and that includes FusionNet, which is what we put up, we stand up, of course, anytime we've got an emergent situation uh, around elections, batch steam distribution, riots, burning, looting, um, uh, active shooter events, anything that looks like it could be a crisis, dangerous weather, um, so they can get on before, during, and after those events, talk with each other, uh, post open source and other types of intelligence, banners, things they're finding out there in the deep web and online, um, 
Also, there are voice channels that uh, they can securely talk to each other uh, to prepare for or during handling or recovering from events. That's been a big one that's come out of there. Some of this innovation research, too, that we've done around active shooter development. Um, we just held a, a focus group I've mentioned before, 11 major retailers, their threat assessment people helping us get better at, rec at uh, detecting, recognizing, and connecting the dots on uh, distal and proximate threat warnings, um, leakage, if you will, uh, other signs, indicators, behavioral indicators, uh, whether they're voiced or they're digital or they are somehow visual. So that's another one. Um, the, the lab itself, we're now conducting some heavy duty virtual reality um, research and development. That's all been enabled by the Innovate program. So we'd encourage any uh, SP uh, that's in the LPRC to, to become an LPRC Innovate partner, get on there, uh, collaborate and, and work with uh, 30 major retailers, work with our research scientist team around the world, brand and things like that. Um, we've also, so I, that's my main updates right now. Um, we're working, of course, a lot on uh, shoplifting reduction through the product protection working group. Corey, of course, had a very, very successful product protection summit. Um, we had voting panels of retailers assessing the aesthetics, the capability, the survivability, but most of the impact and cost effectiveness of proposed solutions throughout five zones to detect and to defer, deter, um, and uh, disrupt, and finally document dishonest people that are stealing from these stores, victimizing them. Um, we've got a lot going on with the ARCS program. You'll hear more about that from Corey Lowe. We'll have him on the Crime Science Podcast uh, Dr. Lowe is our senior research scientist. Also, the NRSS, the National Retail Security Survey, the latest version, uh, Dr. Lowe and team are putting that together. We're working closely with um, and, and partially funded by the National Retail Federation, the NRF, on that study, organized retail crime study. So you're seeing a lot of baseline information. I, I mentioned the voice of the victims. That's where we're going to be uh, interviewing in, in depth. Uh, retail store employees that have been exposed to aggression or violence in some form, trying to understand the psychological and physical effects on them, their coworkers, their shoppers or customers uh, on their, that specific location, their community, um, and so on. So we really want to better define and understand the harm that's created by criminal offenders. So that's it from me. Uh, many, many more, more things going on that we'll talk about later, including body-worn camera research, and so on. So with no further ado, maybe let me go ahead and turn it over to Tony D'Onofrio. Tony? Thank you very much, Reed. Really, really good updates. And uh, and I also want to compliment you on the progress that's being made with the innovation group. I know I'm part of it, and it's good to see the both the engagement and also the progress that we're making in terms of innovation. And that's a topic that I spend a lot of time each week. So let me start this week, actually, from a report from a very good friend and lost revenge industry leader from 7-Eleven, Byron Smith. It's my pleasure to summarize a new report uh, on the convenience store industry that he shared this week, called the Convenience Experience Report and published by BlueDot.io. This research provides a summary of the state of this very important retail sector. The top five takeaways from the report are six and 10 consumer consider purchasing a meal from a convenience store when stopping for fast food. So they're becoming a fast food stop, which is interesting. 
There's a significant demand for mobile ordering, drive-through and curbside pickup. 62% would visit a C-store more often if the drive-through or curbside pickup was available. To win and retain customer loyalty, guest discounts are imperative. However, right now, there's a huge gap between consumers who want loyalty programs for guest discounts and loyalty members who actually get them. Uh, price overwhelmingly impacts uh, where consumers fill up. Nearly 9 in 10 state that price dictates where they buy gas. And then finally, sea stores and gas stations appear to be losing customers to short lines. One in three will drive away if there's a single car ahead of them at the pump. Nearly half will walk out of a sea store if one or two people are in line at the register. So it's interesting how aggressive they also are in terms of looking for short lines. Also interesting in the research, seven in 10 consumers enter a convenience store when they get gas. 83% of consumers are concerned with credit fraud. The majority of consumers would like to skip swiping or inserting their credit card when paying on the pump, so they're looking for something else. Digital screens at the pump irritate consumers. 47% find the relevance irrelevant. 41% is nothing that's interesting. And 30% find them too loud. Uh, a bunch of the folks at pump gas uh, look at their consumer. In fact, the half of the consumers look at their phones while pumping a gas. The number one reason consumers would download a gas and convenient app on their phone is discounts. Um, uh, so 86% of, of customers would download an app for discounts, 57% to earn and track loyalty points. And uh, industry, 40% would do it to protect from credit card fraud. So that might be an answer, pay with your phone. The top three things that consumer want from their digital screens at the pump, if you are going to use them, are convenience store deals, loyalty points as levels, and news and entertainment. So interesting in terms of what's going on in the uh, convenience store industry. And, and again, they're a member of the LPRC, and that's a sector we also look at because that has a, a lot of interesting activity. Let me switch to a totally different topic and uh, talk to, uh, from the new data from Statista and summarize how happy and loyal we are to our smartphones in the US. And the reason I, I track smartphones very uh, closely is that in multiple articles, I named the smartphone the third megatrend that disrupted and transformed retail. Uh, the reason for that is the smartphone really trans, uh, moved the power of retail from the retailer to the consumer who now walking into a store can instantly switch to another retailer, even while it's standing in front of the product that they're actually trying to buy if they can find it cheaper somewhere else on their smartphone. With that in mind, which smartphones are we happiest with and most loyal to? The data again is from Statista. The number one is Apple. 92% of consumers are satisfied with Apple's and interesting, the loyalty score is only 13%. Number two is Samsung with 91% satisfied and a 10% loyalty score. And number three is Google with an 85% consumer satisfied and a negative 36% loyalty score. I was surprised actually by this research. That's why I'm citing it. I thought Apple would be a lot farther ahead than Samsung, and they're not. They're extremely close. So I would expect a war of what's new in smartphones to continue. 
smartphones are a lot a lot related to what's happening to 5G and the growth of 5G is important because it allows for more video and more analysis and more um, aggressive information that we can look at. So speaking of smartphones, where are we in terms of the adoption of um, 5G? Again, new research from Statista in 2022, global 5G adoption will cross over a billion subscriptions. A substantial majority of the penetration of the volume of 5G subscription is in Asia Pacific, followed by North America and Europe. I would expect that India, China, with their large population, are the major contributors to the growth in Asia. By 2027, 4 billion subscription will be in place, with again Asia Pacific leading the way. I continue to follow innovation in China, and I, I can see a lot of the things that they're doing with smartphones, including increased applications with video, augmented reality, virtual reality, and they're also deep in, in trying to figure out how to leverage uh, the metaverse. And again, a good place to understand how all this interplays and how 5G and how we use our smartphones is here at the LPRC and, and how we experiment. And finally, and Reed mentioned this in terms of the uh, the violence groups and all the areas that we spend time. Interesting, just this past week, a couple of folks mentioned the same thing. Uh, in a podcast, Terry Sullivan for the Loss Prevention Foundation said, uh, uh, in, and, the, and the podcast was with the Loss Prevention Magazine, he cited safety as his most important concern for the retail industry and fully agree with, with him, especially when you look at some new data that was just published by DND this week, which highlights again where we're at with this problem. Starting Memorial Day, the DND Daily began compiling and analyzing data from 15 major cities to get a snapshot of summer gun violence. In the past seven weekends since Memorial Day, there are in those 15 major cities, they experienced an amazing 860 shootings with 276 people killed and 896 people injured. Just as past weekend of July 8 to July 10, there were 96 shootings recorded in the same cities, re re resulting in 26 deaths and 91 injuries. To me, that's very, very disturbing. And again, I urge all listeners to engage with the LPRC for us to all work together to get a better handle on violence, especially in the retail sector. And with that, let me turn it over to Tom. Well, thank you, Tony. Thank you, Reed. Good morning. And uh, a couple different uh, stories today that I find uh, will be interesting. Some of them are in, in the moment. Uh, so we tape on a Tuesday and you will hear some of this happening right now. So. Uh, the city of New York has issued a public service announcement on what to happen, what to do if a nuclear attack happens. So lots of news around this. I think um, one of the representatives from New York City said there's no good time to release a public service announcement like this. There's always going to uh, be concerns. Uh, they note that there's no credible or uh, or any threat, but they they said that they, this was a public service amount that needed to go out. And it really talks about the basics of, of what if there was nuclear fallout, uh, get inside uh, if you've been exposed to uh, dust or any were in a new, the cloud to shower immediately, stay inside, um, and then basically in your house have enough food and water for two days and stay tuned. Uh, 
with the heightened kind of global climate, uh, the incident in the Ukraine, the potential for China and uh, conflict in, with Taiwan, I, I would assume, and this is an assumption, that there, there is some ties of that the timing of this is related to that. But this was something that I think occurred in the past more often, and we kind of forget. And for anybody who um, grew up in the 60s and 70s, this was during the Cuban Missile Crisis, there were a lot of drills and PSAs around that. So I think uh, New York City did a good job of explaining that this was just something that needed to be said. Um, it reminds me of when I was growing up, uh, there was a nuclear power plant within uh, 30 miles of me for a long time, and there were constant drills at school of what would happen during fallout. So I think that uh, while it, it is certainly unsettling to some degree, uh, it's a necessity to talk about it. Uh, I think we'll see more of that in the upcoming weeks, just based on some of the uh, things that are occurring globally. Civil unrest. So we've seen unprecedented amount of civil unrest throughout um, the United States and, uh, and Canada uh, over the last uh, 24 months or so related, whether it be to political decisions or uh, unfortunate um, uh, incidences with law enforcement. But I think it, it, something very interesting is going on globally. We know that during the pandemic and the height, there were countries that you would say were not traditionally countries that you would see unrest. And we're starting to see that kind of uh, pop up again. So Sri Lanka ousted its government or their president or tried to oust it, uh, you know, hundreds of thousands of citizens uh, uh, stormed the capital. We have unrest in Israel, the UK, Italy, Argentina, China, Cuba, Macedonia, the Netherlands, Albania, uh, all happening at, at the same time and obviously here in the U.S., as we talk about uh, constantly some of the uh, civil unrest that has uh, recently sprung up from some of the recent Supreme Court decisions. So one of the things that I'm starting to monitor, and I know that the LPRC with the fusion that will monitor too, is now you're in this heightened state of civil unrest. So there is a tremendous amount of chatter. And when you add the global layer into this and you have countries that you like Cuba and China, um, Albania, that you would not traditionally see um, with unrest. Certainly in Cuba, being a communist government or China, uh, it, you don't generally see that level of unrest because of the type of countries and the way the government runs, but we're starting to see that. We're also, while it's being very heavily shielded from the public, we're seeing some unrest in a smaller fashions in parts of Russia. Uh, the chatter is, is to, uh, you know, over anything I've ever seen from, from social media of what is occurring. Uh, and most of, of all of those countries that I mentioned uh, were around government uh, corruption or things that, that weren't agreed to with the government. Um, it is kind of a, a sign of a potential turning uh, of people trying to get more involved in government. Uh, this unrest is, is, that I mentioned in some of these countries is while it, it is large scale. In some cases, it is peaceful. In others, it is a, a little bit more um, potentially violent and destructive. So we'll continue to monitor it. I think it, it warrants conversation about the importance of having a long-term monitoring strategy around civil unrest and, and planning uh, and watching what's occurring in other countries. We know that humans are humans and we know that if things are happening in other countries that there sometimes do spill over to here. Um, I think there's 
certainly a political movement outside of the United States where we're seeing in the UK unrest and then a prime force stepping down. Uh, we're seeing the Sri Lankan president in hiding. So we're starting to see this turn of the tides. And I do think that it's important to stay tuned to it because I think there is absolutely a need to pay attention to what I, I don't want to use the word copycat, but it's kind of the best way I can think about it. When you're looking at some of these organizations and groups that do form protests, they generally do look to see what's occurring in other countries and how um, it can be instituted here in the U.S. That is what I'm starting to see. I'm seeing a lot of chatter of an uprising and a power to the people message of that you know, one message was there were six additional countries, I'm reading this, six additional countries decided to show the government that the people the people have the power and they don't. When will we in the United States take this approach? So there is definitely some anti-government rhetoric out there and in a larger scale than in the past. So certainly something we will watch um, here uh, at the LPRC through the fusion net. And um, I think there's a lot of news today and yesterday about a, a new COVID-19 uh, variant, BA5, the subvariant taking over. Um, I think what I'm starting to see chatter is, is how do tech companies protect people's privacy while still allowing for contract tracing? We're in this new kind of realm. I'm actually on the West Coast today, and I saw more people with masks than I've seen in recent months at the airport, um, travel quite a bit. And so... Now the, the, this whole contract tracing using technology, how can um, the government do contract tracing while still protecting privacy and identify clusters? So there's a lot of talk about that in the tech space um, over how this works. And then also in countries like European countries where the privacy laws are much stricter, how can technology be utilized to help identify clusters or outbreaks and identify, you know, um, where people are, even if it's anonymous data to understand what to plan for. So for instance, uh, a lot of conversation about, we have this data today, it's available to us. Is there a way to anonymize it to just simply prepare a region for an outbreak uh, or by basically prepping medical providers saying, we know this one individual was in this location or these 10 individuals were in this location and we know there were several thousand in close proximity using cell phone data. Already, if you have an Android or an iPhone, you, which probably most of the listeners do, you'll know, probably have noticed at some point that there is an option to opt in to contract tracing where you can be notified. Um, in some circumstances, this was on by default. I think some of that has changed depending on what type of phone you have and what version of software. But the next step is how do you use that data uh, and keep some anonymous to uh, keep it anonymized to at least prepare or get information uh, out to people. So maybe uh, one of the, the conversation threads that I saw was maybe they don't know who you are, but they send a message saying, you know, you were in an area that multiple people were exposed to test and to quarantine. So that's something that is actively being talked about now in the tech space. And we'll continue to monitor that because I do think it will infect all of us at some point affect all of us, the, this privacy piece, not infect. Um, just wanted to, to clarify that. Uh, TikTok continues to be scrutinized by um, governments throughout the world. The United States has 
has issued several different kind of mandates to TikTok potentially banning because it is partially owned by a Chinese um, company. I think uh, Europe just basically said on July 13th that the you know there needs to be uh, some changes, and as of July 13th, you will see in Europe. July will be the day that Europe no longer targets TikTok ads based on um, a person's data. So that falls under the Irish Data Protection Commission uh, as well as GRP. So we're continuing to see this this move of privacy in Europe. I do see trends and laws occurring in the United States. I think this is a good thing. I think that um, certainly uh, there are some benefits to having targeted information. But uh, if there is government oversight, I think it it does afford us a little bit uh, better protection from that standpoint. Uh, We're starting to see some chatter about Twitter. Uh, I think Twitter is one of the main sources for um, protests and civil unrest data that I use. And we're starting to see Elon Musk is trying to pull out of that deal that we talked about before. While that's going on, um, there are actually um, a lot of features being added to Twitter. Now you can do tweets collaboratively, meaning that you and someone can do a tweet together. So Tony and myself could actually send a tweet out or read it myself together, meaning that we'd hit both of our user bases. They're also allowing um, for some level of uh, mentioning and unmentioning. So there are a lot of different things. So for instance, you can actually um, remove someone from a, a, a tweet now and, and a lot of different features. I think it will help us here in our space monitor, also allow us to use the platform differently. So it's certainly something to keep an eye on for all of us here at the LPRC um, because I think that Twitter is one of those feeds that we use very, very heavily. Um, and then I think um, I'll, I'll end kind of with a message about phishing. So there has been a rash of, and we've talked about this many times on the podcast here, phishing, traditional phishing, that, that uh, enticement to click uh, a link. Well, now we're starting to see uh, much more sophisticated attempts and tasks. These aren't necessarily new. I think they're just revitalizing it where you're starting to get emails that are callback uh, phishing. So there is no click. This, this gives an, uh, the impression of less risk because you have to have human interaction. So an email that looks pretty legitimate, uh, much like a phishing email, but as opposed to click for your privacy, give, please call this number. Um, and then when you call the, the number, you're getting an operator asking you for an order number or asking you for some information. And basically they have a script to validate, to make you feel and validate that it's real. A lot of times they'll even say, you know, why don't you take my number so that in case we get disconnected and give, give another number that is something you can Google. So the general rule of thumb here is it doesn't change much from click. If you're not expecting something or you don't have an Amazon order that's out there, you know, um, resist the urge to call the number, look on your Amazon account, look in places that you know are controlled. Um, I actually got a couple samples. One was very, very well done and it basically was an Amazon order that said, this is a new process to validate orders. We saw a fraud on your account. Uh, a lot of really good information. They use a lot of redacted information. So it looks very legitimate. And then 
you know, a lot of ID numbers and things of that nature, but then there's a phone number to call and you're getting a call in. So this is not, again, a new thing, but I'm starting to see a huge influx of this. And that has probably to do with some of the education and awareness around what I would say are traditional or regular phishing scams that we've seen in the past is now the, the red actor or the bad guy, the nefarious actor, has to evolve with the changes as we educate people on cyber awareness and we continue to talk about it. The traditional click um, are changing quite a bit. And so we're getting into this evolution of if I get someone on the phone and I imply this false sense of security, I may be able to get that same amount of data. Now, phone scams are nothing new. We've seen these call, the, the calls where someone calls you Difference here is there is a psychological advantage of you're calling them. So they actually have scripted responses of, sir, you called me. I didn't call you. You should be able to trust us. Um, And it is a a very good play on the the psyche. And this is what we talk about all the time with social engineering. This is where social engineering comes in is manipulating human behavior. So a tremendous amount of these are out there. They're everything from order scams where you have an order that's delivery is delayed or fraud um, or, you know, we're, we're responding to your customer service request for a refund. Uh, we've also seen kind of the typical banking emails where we've detected unusual activity on our account. We can't disclose it in the email. Give us a call at this phone number. When you call, you know, don't give us a password or username. Like, so really taking an extent of, of saying never give your password to anybody on the phone, never give this information to on the phone, and then when you call them, they're basically trying to get information from you. I actually had the, the, the privilege of hearing a live call around an order scam, and it was very well, well, well done where um, the person made a point to not ask anything in the first call and said that um, let me do some research and I will call you back. Um, called back and then asked for some validating information and basically was trying to get uh, personal information um, actually sent while they're on the phone, a fake email uh, reset your password link, which required you to enter your old password to reset your new password. And that was, that was the choke, you know, that was the choke point of how they were getting the information. Very, very elaborate. These are 10, 12 minute kind of phone conversations to get to you to the point where you feel so comfortable. And again, they'll say that in this particular call, the statement was, I, you know, we'll never ever give your password to anybody on the phone. What we're going to do is we're going to send you a secure link so you can reset your password to make your account safe. Um, and basically then sending a link that says, you know, enter your current password to change very, very um, kind of time consuming process for the bad actor, but a much, much different approach. So uh, our advice doesn't change much. If you're not expecting an email or, you know, same thing as don't click or download an attachment, don't make that call. Um, Don't make that call if if you're not expecting a package. Um, You know, maybe, you know, my advice would be to go into an account. If you have an Amazon account, look for activity if you don't see it. Um, These messages do have some similarities in phishing, where if you look very carefully at addresses, you'll see that there's slight changes. Variation in language and grammar is common in all of them. There's usually some sort of mistake. Um, mo- the, probably the most prolific that I've seen was a PayPal email um, that looked very, very good. 
Uh, it, there was one slight change in the email address, but other than that, it was very good. And again, not asking you to click on anything, asking you to pick up and call to validate something. So keep an eye out for that. I think we're going to continue to see the, uh, more of those. Uh, and with that, I will turn it back over to Tony and Reed. All right. Thank you so much for all that great information, Tom. Thank you, Tony, as well. Um, I want to thank uh, Diego as well as our producer. Uh, but most of all, I want to thank you all for listening. Uh, please stay in touch, lpresearch.org, uh, operations at lpresearch.org. We're here. We want to listen. We want to help um, learn about our 34 active research um, programs that are underway right now. More growing. Come visit us in the labs. Uh, set up a visit at, at, via our email on our website. Come in here, uh, meet with us, greet with us, tour with us, brainstorm. Uh, but everybody stay safe out there. Thanks for listening to the Crime Science Podcast presented by the Loss Prevention Research Council. If you enjoyed today's episode, you can find more crime science episodes and valuable information at lpresearch.org. The content provided in the Crime Science Podcast is for informational purposes only and is not a substitute for legal, financial, or other advice. Views expressed by guests of the Crime Science Podcast are those of the authors and do not reflect the opinions or positions of the Loss Prevention Research Council. 